verses 13 to 15. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Our message is titled, The Source, Force, and Course of Temptation. The Source, Force, and Course of Temptation. Look at those verses again. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted. With evil neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Why does James change topics from trials in verse 12 to temptations in verse 13? One reason may be that every trial has the potential to become temptation when not met with faith. Trials may lead us, for example, to wallow in doubt instead of seeking the Lord in prayer. Temptation is used in two senses. Testing under trial, as we see in James 1.12, and then the other sense is solicitation to evil. That is how it's used in James 1.13-14. James is now going to talk about this temptation in this passage, which is the temptation to do evil. People often say that the Lord tested them in reference to a temptation of sin that they have experienced, when it was not the Lord testing them at all. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he does not tempt with evil. James deals with something here which is very important for God's children to understand, because we often blame God for a great many things in our own lives for which he is not responsible. A man was on a diet and struggling. He had to go downtown. As he started out, he remembered that his route would take him by the donut shop. As he got closer, he thought, man, a cup of coffee sure would hit the spot right now. But then he remembered his diet. That's when he prayed, Lord, if you want me to stop for a donut and coffee, let there be a parking place in the front of the shop. And then he said later, sure enough, I found the parking place right in front on my seventh time around the block. As someone has also said, most people want to be delivered from temptation, but would like to keep in touch. James in these verses gives us a strategy for overcoming the deadly lure of temptation. To overcome temptation, recognize its source, its force, and its course. To overcome temptation, recognize its force. Point number one, James 1, 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Neither tempteth he any man. James makes it very clear that God never tests men with evil and with sin. Man has a natural propensity to blame God for his own fumbles and failures and sins, and James addresses this tendency head-on and bluntly in this passage. Tempted in verse 13 is the same Greek word that is translated as trial in verses 2 and 12, but it clearly has two different senses. God tests or tries believers' faith, but he does not tempt anyone to sin. God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. 
God tested Job by allowing Satan to afflict him with all of his trials. We see that in the book of Job. God tests both the righteous and the wicked to reveal their respective characters. See that in Psalm 11 and also in Exodus chapter 16. With his people, the purpose of God's test is to refine our faith like gold or silver. We see that in Psalm 66, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 4. But because of indwelling sin and the existence of Satan, every test may also become a temptation to sin. Thus, it is important to recognize that temptation never comes from God. So we must not never blame him for tempting us. Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, fallen human nature has been prone to shift the blame for our own evil deeds. When God confronted Adam, he lamely replied in Genesis 3.12, The woman whom thou hast given to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. When God confronted Eve, she replied in Genesis 3.13, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Both statements are technically true, but they dodged a personal responsibility for sin. Adam's answer really blamed God, who gave the woman to Adam. James wants us to see here in this passage that if we go down that route, we will not overcome temptation, and we will impugn the holy character of God in the process. Proverbs 19.3 insightfully observes, The foolishness of man perverteth his way, and his heart fretteth against the Lord. What perverteth the way of man? The foolishness of man perverteth his way. He perverts his own way. The Bible has numerous examples of shifting the blame for sin. One that is humorous, if sin can be humorous, is when Aaron makes the golden calf. In Exodus 32-2-4, here this passage reports that he told the people to bring their jewelry. He took it and fashioned it with a tool and made it into a golden calf. But later, when Moses confronts him about it, Aaron, in Exodus 32-24, unbelievably says that he took the people's gold then I cast it into the fire and there came out this calf Aaron had the gall to blame the fire for his actions Moses I didn't do it I got their jewelry and I threw it in the fire and poof there comes out this calf this sounds a lot like one of the many excuses I have heard from my four-year-old and six-year-old about things that they've done Something's in the floor. Something got knocked over. I was playing, Daddy, and I ran by it, and all of a sudden it just fell on the floor on its own. I don't know what happened. Or something marked on the wall. I don't know what happened. It was just there. It, it, it was just there. Something, it, it, something weird happened. It's just there. Unbelievable excuses. And this excuse from Aaron was an unbelievably unbelievable excuse. There is no sin or evil with God. John, 1 John 1 5 tells us, Then this is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There is no evil in God. In him is all goodness, and all is light, and all is right. James nails that felicitous and sinful line of blame shifting on the head when he says, God cannot be tempted with evil. It is impossible because of his holy nature. Thou art purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 
Jesus made this very interesting statement in John 14:30. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Let's touch on some theology at this point. Jesus could not sin. Some may ask then, why was he tempted? In Matthew 4, 7, Jesus said to Satan, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. God wants to save us from sin, and he does not tempt men to sin. God wants to deliver men from sin. God never uses sin as a test, but he will permit it, as we shall see. The Lord Jesus had no sin in him. The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, he said. The reason he was tempted was to prove there was nothing in him. After Jesus had lived a life on earth for 30 years, Satan came with his temptation. A temptation that appealed to man's total personality. The physical side, the mental side, and the spiritual side. The Lord Jesus could not fall, and the testing was given to demonstrate that he could not fall. If he could have fallen, then at any moment your salvation and mine is in doubt. The minute he yielded to sin, we would have no Savior. His temptation was to prove that he could not sin. Since God cannot be tempted by evil, it follows that neither tempteth he any man. James 1.13 If we want to overcome temptation, we must at the outset put out of our minds all shifting to blame, especially blaming God, then where does temptation come from then? Temptation comes from our own sinful desires. James 1.14 Drawn away of his own lust. James does not mention here the devil as a source of temptation, although he will do so later in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Here he wants us to see that to blame God or to blame circumstances or to blame the devil or others for my sin is to dodge the real source of it. There is no hope for overcoming it unless I acknowledge it comes from my own sinful desires. But conversely, there is hope for victory when I begin to recognize and be on guard against the monster that resides in me. I'm going to read you a portion of a poem here. Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. The lines I just quoted were written by Robert Burns, a Scottish poet, many years ago. He had a reason to pen the reference to his passions leading him astray, having just fathered an illegitimate child before writing this poem. But he had no cause to blame God for his own actions, for temptation works by appealing to our own sinful desires. Lust means desire. Sometimes it refers to legitimate desires. In Luke chapter 22, Philippians 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but usually it means sinful desire. Sometimes the same basic desire may either be legitimate or sinful, depending on the situation and how we handle it. For example, hunger is a legitimate desire, but if it tempts us to steal to satisfy our hunger, we sin. Also, we need to distinguish between the matter in which Jesus was tempted and the way we are tempted. Jesus did not have an innate desire towards sin, as we do. Thus, for Jesus, temptation had to come from outside, not within. He did not have to battle sinful thoughts, such as lust or greed or being jealous of others, as we do. All of these wrong desires come from our sinful hearts, which we inherited because of Adam's sin. To overcome temptation, 
It is important to realize that although the initial thought to sin stems from my sinful flesh, it is not sin unless I pursue it. Sin always begins in the mind. No one ever falls into adultery without first entertaining it in his or her thought life. If we judge these sinful thoughts the instant they pop up into our minds, we will not head down the path toward outwardly sinful behavior. If we do entertain such sinful thoughts, sooner or later, Satan will present the outward opportunity to sin, and we will fall. But in such cases, the actual sin has been going on mentally for some time. If we make it our habit to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we will not sin in thought or deed. We differ from person to person with regard to the things that tempt us. Men differ, differ from women, but also men differ among men, and women among women. Pride leads us to judge those who yield to sins that have little appeal for us. We might say something like this, how could they do such a thing? Because we that sin has little appeal to us, so you know we can be we can be prideful and make that statement. How did they do such a thing? I would never do anything like that. Well, you're right; it has absolutely no appeal to you. You would never do anything like that. But the same pride lets us excuse our own weaknesses. That's just the way I am. You know, that's that's just the way I am. But humility says, "Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall." First Corinthians ten twelve. Also, when we yield to a particular sin, it becomes a point of vulnerability for future temptation. So James' first point is that to overcome temptation, we must recognize its source. It does not come from God. It comes from our own sinful desires. And number two, to overcome temptation, recognize its force. James 1.14 But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Who is responsible when you are drawn away to do evil? You are responsible. The source of temptation is not God or the devil, but man's own sinful heart. Man is drawn away than the Lord to the hook of his own lusts. He is accountable and no one else. If we are in a grip of lust, the Father is ours and ours alone. Every man is tempted. This is the declaration of the individuality of the personality in the race of mankind. Each of us has a different moral nature. All of us have our own peculiarities and our own besetting sins that are unique to each of us. Hebrews 12.1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us side every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Temptations are always appealing, otherwise they would have no power over us. The language James uses to describe the mechanism of temptation comes from the world of fishing. Drawn away suggests a picture of a fish that has been hooked. To be enticed suggests being attracted by bait or lure. The beautiful mayfly only lives for one day and hovers above the waters and rivers and lakes. Its feathery imitation tied onto a hook by a fly fisherman on a warm summer evening proves irresistible to the fish. It does take skill to catch a fish this way, but caught they often are. And so are we. We are tempted or enticed by the very appealing allurement of Satan in this world that is especially designed to tap into our weaknesses. Then we are so enticed by this temptation that we get hooked into this sin and drawn away from God and goodness as a result. 
Martin Luther had these thoughts on temptation and yielding to it. For they who think they make an end of temptation by yielding to it only set themselves on fire for the more. James shows us three ways that temptation is powerfully destructive. Number one, the force of temptation is that it dwells within our hearts. This is not an outside enemy, but one that lives within us. Indwelling sin lurks there until the day we die and go to be with Jesus. Charles Simeon used this analogy that we are carrying about within ourselves much flammable material. If we are not careful, temptation can strike the spark that causes a huge explosion. Number two, the force of temptation is that it has a powerful and deceptive emotional element. James 1.14 says that each one is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. As mentioned earlier, the, the words he uses come from fishing. The fish sees the bait and it lures him towards it, thinking that he will get a meal. Instead, he gets hooked and carried away where he becomes the meal. The temptation to sin is like that. We think that sin will satisfy us and get us something good that we're missing, but instead it hooks us and drags us to destruction. There is always a deceptive element to temptation. It is strengthened by the powerful emotions involved. As believers, we are not to live by our feelings, but by faith and obedience based on a knowledge of God's word of truth. Let me say that again. As believers, we are not to live by our feelings, but by faith and obedience, based on the knowledge of God's word of truth. We need to follow it. No matter how strongly our feelings pull us in a different direction, we need to follow the word of truth. Follow the Bible. Don't let your feelings lead you astray. Follow the Bible. Your feelings may tell you to do something different. Obey the Bible. Your feelings may say, let's do this. This will be fun. This will be great. Submit to the word of God. Obey the Bible. Don't let your feelings lead you astray. Stick with the word of God. Temptation makes us feel like heading towards sin, but we need to follow God's word no matter how we feel. And then number three, the force of temptation is that it has a life of its own. We've all seen a tree growing out of a concrete sidewalk where it has split the concrete. Though it began as a tiny seed, falling into a tiny crack. But that seed had life in it, and the power of that life produced a tree that broke up the sidewalk. Temptation has this kind of destructive life in it. Don't let it take root in your life and destroy that part of your life. To overcome temptation, recognize its source, your own sinful desires. To overcome temptation, recognize its force, it dwells in your own heart and is a powerfully deceptive emotion with a life of its own. And finally, to overcome temptation, recognize its course. James 1.15 That when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. In other words, when desire of the soul, having conceived, gives birth to sin, which having been completed, brings forth death. James has a very interesting word choice in this verse. When lust hath conceived, this word actually means to become pregnant. Conception is the joining or union of two. The desire of this old nature of ours joins with the outward temptation that faces us and thus becomes sin. A natural question at this point is, is temptation sin? Billy Sunday put it this way, temptation is not sin, 
yielding is. And Mr. Sunday was correct. Temptation is not sin. It does lead to sin when the conception takes place, where the thought in the heart is carried out into action. Martin Luther expressed it in a very easy way to understand. You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. You cannot always help when temptation will enter your life, though you can in some circumstances, and then you should take steps to avoid it. But you can determine not to yield to that unanticipated temptation when it comes. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Notice the certainty of this verse. When lust hath conceived with temptation, it bringeth forth sin. This birth cannot be stopped. When the evil thought in the heart is joined with the outward temptation, there is a birth of an act, a birth of a sin. And when sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There are three kinds of death spoken of in the scripture. One, physical death. And that death comes to every man with certainty. Number two, spiritual death, which is the condition of the lost man. He is dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. And eternal death, number three, which is the fate of the man who dies in unbelief. The word death here primarily means separation. Therefore, for a believer, it means that when sin is born in his life, when it becomes an action, his fellowship with God is broken. There is separation. You cannot have fellowship with God and permit sin continually to happen in your life. Sin will bring separation with your relationship with God. If you are his child, then he will judge you for it if you do not judge yourself. James shows us that sin is never stationary. It moves steadily in its course towards its ultimate and hideous end, and that is death. Sin is like a small crack in a dam. At first, it does not seem threatening. But if it is not repaired quickly, it can lead to the collapse of the entire dam, causing terrible destruction. Death. And James 1.15 stands in great contrast to the crown of life mentioned in James 1.12. They are two totally separate destinies. At first, the two paths may seem just like a small fork in the road, but follow them to the end and you're in two very different places, life or death. At the outset, temptation always promises excitement and fulfillment. It never comes along with a pitch. Would you like to destroy yourself and your family? Would you like to disgrace the name of God? Rather, it comes on with this enticement. This will be fun. This will meet your needs. This will get you what you've been looking for. What can it hurt? Just try it. If you take that bait, you're on the course that leads to death. If you do not repent and get back on the path of righteousness, it may indicate that you have never been truly saved. Someone has said, watch your thoughts. They become your words. Watch your words. They become actions. Watch your actions. They become habits. Watch your habits. They become character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. So in conclusion, we will close with four practical ways to overcome temptation. Number one, study and know yourself. Know when you're vulnerable. Know where you're vulnerable and devise strategies to protect yourself. Others may be able to handle situations where you will fall. Don't go with them if it's a source of temptation to you. Develop a deep distrust in yourself that drives you to the desperate clinging unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, 
avoid tempting situations. If you know certain things are of a great temptation to you, then keep as far away from them as possible. This may go as far as limiting your access to the internet, avoiding places that sell alcohol. Whatever your temptation may be, if you have a great weakness to a certain sin, go to equally or greater lengths to insulate yourself from that temptation. Number three, have a predetermined commitment to follow Christ and to flee temptation. You have to decide this before you get into a tempting situation because when temptation hits, your emotions and the deception factor will kick in. As we saw in our last study, those who receive the crown of life love the Lord. Keep your love for Christ fresh and the lure of the flesh and the world will not seem so attractive. And number four, keep before you the gruesome end of temptation, which is death. The world glamorizes sin. Movies and magazines portray beautiful people enjoying illicit sins or living in selfish luxury as the ultimate in pleasure. Skeletons or rotting corpses would be a more accurate picture. I've counseled with many teens who have struggled with physical intimacy type temptations, but I've never found one that was really happy about that sin. The ones that did not heed the biblical counsel offered are leading very unhappy lives trying to find lasting happiness in the pleasures of sin and failing miserably. Hebrews 11:24 to 26 by faith when Moses he was come to years refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. This is really serious because you won't make it as a Christian if you do not learn to overcome temptation. Recognize its source. It does not come from God, but from your own lusts. Recognize its force. It dwells within, and it is powerfully deceptive with a life of its own. Recognize its course. If you do not abort it, it leads inevitably not to life, but to death. The Puritan Thomas Manton put it this way, Either sin must die or the sinner. But there is good news. The glory of the gospel is that it can break the power of sin and halt its inevitable train. If you are in the grip of temptation, take the eternally healthy step of admitting that you are to blame and no one else. Then have you confessed your responsibility fully to God, thank Him for forgiveness, and appropriate to yourself the life-giving solidarity you have in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace.